You might remember a few years ago, Dr. Anita Heiss edited a biographical anthology called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. Featuring 52 new and established writers, the collection looked to capture both the unique and universal experiences of blackfellas from many walks of life. Now, four years later, Anita has a new biographical anthology, this time about growing up Wiradjuri. Away's Jerome Commissari spoke to three of the eight elders who contributed to the book sharing personal stories of growing up in the 50s and 60s under the rule of the Welfare Board. To begin, this is Annie Lorraine Tai, whose story opens the collection. I was born in Wagga, but I contacted polio at 21 months and was sent to Sydney to the Far West Children's Home. And that was in 1952, Christmas Day, 52, I got it. And then I went to Sydney, it would have been about March, I think, 53. I was down there on and off. I, I think the first time I stayed there for about three or four years. Then I come home for six months or 12 months and then I go back and stay for another couple of years. And I did that all my childhood until I was 14. Why was that the story you wanted to tell? I think it was the fact that I didn't actually grow up with our Wiradjuri culture. I grew up with a lot of Aboriginal children, but because we were in a home, there was no culture uh, shown at all. It wasn't until I came home when I was 14 that I decided that I really wanted to find out, you know, where I come from, where my ancestors, aunties, uncles, because I didn't know anyone. My other brothers and sister, or my, my brother and sisters, they would speak about aunties and uncles and cousins. I didn't know them. I'd never met them. So it was something that I thought or I felt I needed to explain. And it was when I came back in 1980 that I really, I wanted to find aunts, uncles, cousins, things like that. By that time, my father had passed away. He passed away at 53. So I couldn't sort of ask him the questions that I should have asked him a lot earlier. Do you think you were able to recover some of that information? I I was really lucky because I rang every hotel in nearly in New South Wales looking for the Russells. And that was how I I eventually found um, Dad's first cousins. Now, that's a great story. So, but that's not what is in the book. I left that out of the book. (laughs) (laughs) um, Maybe that goes in the next one. (laughs) Arnie Lorraine, at the end of your book, you say, our culture is not lost, just waiting to be remembered. Exactly. I'd like, you know, younger ones to realise that it's not it's not lost, it's not gone, you can learn about it. Some, some younger people, they wonder, they, they know that there's something missing in their life but they don't know what. And I think my story was to say it's, it's never too late, it's always, will be there for you. The books growing up Wiradjuri, does there need to be one of these for every group in Australia or is there something unique about growing up Wiradjuri, that these stories needed to be told? 
I think every everyone that that knows culture or is part of culture needs to know exactly where they came from and what's behind, well, with me, Wiradjuri. What made Wiradjuri? Why, you know, um, why is, is Wiradjuri country so important? Why is other stories, the Dreamtime stories important? And I think with a book, it helps put that forward. Every state in Australia would would benefit by it. And I also think it would be interesting for younger ones, say a 20-year-old now, to do a story and then in 30 years' time do another one. It would be interesting to see what just what would what the difference would be. It would be. Do you think you can submit a story in 30 years, Arnie Lorraine? Oh, I plan to. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no intentions of going anywhere yet. <laughs> so you called a bunch of pubs looking for your um, your father's relatives. Mm-hmm. Which pub did you find them in? Where were they? <laughs> it was um, at Harden that I, I come across. Just happened to ring and I got a good publican or a good bar person yelled out, who knows any Russells to the bar? And a chap came on and said, I'm the, the son-in-law of the Russell. When I, I went and I rang them first and then I arranged to meet them and I drove, or my husband took me over, I went to the door and he, Basil Russell, answered the door and he just stopped there and said, oh, my God, oh, my God. You're the spitting image of Zilla. <laughs> and that was my grandmother. <laughs> How lovely. Yeah, yeah. So he, we went in, I went in and he pulled out photos and showed me we had afternoon tea. It was, oh, it was absolutely brilliant. I met his sisters from there. Now, um, Alma Russell, she passed away just before Christmas, three months before she turned 100. Wow. Mm, I think I mentioned her in the book, actually, and when I wrote the story, she was 98, and I used to visit her quite often. She lived at Burrawa, and I used to visit her, you know, quite often. She'd tell me all the different stories and what they did, and she'd give me a lot of photos, and I picked up a lot of information about the family that I had no idea, and I didn't think I'd ever, ever find because dad had already passed. Going back to the book, Growing Up Wiradjuri, do you think it's important for you to, I guess, be open to young people trying to come and and build their family tree or figure out where they're from? Is that something that you actively do outside of publishing things like this book? This is the first, first book that's, you know, I've ever been involved with, but my whole aim is for I started with my grandchildren and then I thought there are so many people that could benefit. At the moment, I'm making animations. The first one is The Strong Goanna and it has a moral to the story, just how strong Wiradjuri people are. So I'm sort of, I've gone down that track. What was it like working with Anita Heiss on this one? Oh, she's absolutely beautiful. She really is lovely she was doing the Wiradjuri language, culture and heritage when I met her. 
And this is part and parcel of her nation building. And I did this course, oh gosh, 2015, I think. So I was really, really interested in the nation building. Um, And I think this is just a brilliant way of bringing people together. Yeah, most certainly is. Um, Did you meet many of the other elders that contributed to this? Yeah, I know all of them. You know them all? Yeah, yeah. We've sort of done workshops and worked together um, socially and, well, I'm going for afternoon tea with them after this. (laughs) What we normally say is, Yerdu Marang, Nawabaladu. You and Nadi James Ingram, you and Nadi Mabak Warrigal, Narang Dera, Narinjera, Nurumbang, and Wogadi Wogadi Nurumbang, and of course Radri Nurumbang. So, what I'm saying to you there is that my name's James Ingram. Um, I'm originally from the Narang Dera, Narinjera clan of the great nation of Radri, which is Narandraleet, Nick Griffith, and parts of Darlington Point. Uh, I grew up in um, Leeton, of course, uh, come out of a place called Wattle Hill and, um, yeah, ended up here in Wagga back in 1980 and been here on and off since then. So, yep, that's me. How did you feel to be able to contribute a story to the book Growing Up Wiradjuri? Well, it was just absolutely wonderful that I was asked to do it. I didn't really think I had that much to say, but uh, after I sat down and started writing, there was uh, probably a lot that I left out as well, but uh, I had a connection to all the other people that were in the book. I've known them for a long, long time, and and they have similar stories to me about the hardships that we went through. Um, The best thing I think about the whole thing was that I, I always think that I was born just at the right time because I got to see a lot of the old people who had been through all the struggles and then the jobs that I've had uh, have allowed me to meet other people, other elders throughout the Radri country and listen to their stories and their struggles, you know, particularly in terms of human rights and then land rights and, as my dad always said, water rights as well. So... I've heard all the stories and <laughs> I couldn't think of anything better than sitting around having a yarn with all them old fellas and old girls so that they could tell wonderful stories about how hard life was but also how good it was connecting to our mob and reconnecting to our mob because, you know, uh, both my grandmothers was part of the stolen generation and uh, to meet people who related to my grandmothers from different areas w- was such a, you know, thrill for me to get to know those people and to get to hear the stories about when they knew my grandmothers when they were little girls and so forth. So, yeah, it's been great. Your story is a very quintessential Southwest New South Wales story. It's got a sheep shearing, fruit picking, but it's also a very, it's a very black story. Do you think that this is a similar story to a lot of people your age? Yeah, well, I'm not the Lone Ranger. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not the only one that had to, pick potato peas and pumpkins and oranges and lemons and you know it, you name it, we picked it because it was just a way for us to survive and, but the good times were when we were out all hunting and gathering with the, you know, the elders, you know, setting all the the fish traps and the, the rabbit traps and the 
fox traps and the nets and and sometimes we'd have to resort to knocking off a woolly cod. But our grandfather would always make us take the fleece back and put it over the fence and then <laughs> when the time came we always went back to the farmer and told him, yeah, we done it. And then we'd have to clean up the farm for him and... Yeah, but it was just, uh, you know, my grandfather and father and all my uncles had such great names around, you know, the shearing sheds that, uh, you know, it followed me throughout my life when I was working in other jobs, particularly when I was working with, you know, uh, local land service. People would say, oh, you you won't get much out of that farmer and then I'd walk in the door and they'd say, oh, you're Jimmy Ingram's son or you're Ike Ingram's grandson and I said, that's right and they'd they would tell me about my dad and my grandfather and all my uncles working for them in the shearing sheds and uh, their names would still be up on the leaderboard. So I got a good reception, so it made it easier for me to do my job when I was dealing with farmers around our um, Aboriginal uh, cultural sites, our you know, artefacts and burial sites and everything, you name it. Uh, it made it easier for me to, to do my job because of... Uh, their past history, you know, being men of, um, you know, of note, uh, significant men. Mm. What do you want to get out of putting your story in this book and more generally to do with Wiradjuri culture and, and telling stories? I believe that I'm, I'm at a level where I want to teach young people and young adults and, and, and middle-aged men and older men and women too that... Um, the connecting to country story is a great story. I mean, when you connect our people back to their culture and their heritage and working on the land, you know, especially when you, you know, take it out, um, you know, privet for practice and exotic fruit trees and willow trees, all these trees that don't belong in the bush because the Australian bush is losing its identity as well because of all these backyard escapees that get out of yards and they get into the, into the bush and the waterways and all this sort of stuff. And I just believe that there is a real agenda for our people to be managing former forestry lands and national parks and other public lands where we can get on in there, uh, you know, work a, a day from, you know, eight in the morning till five in the afternoon, seven days a week, learn, you know, your cert twos in land management conservation right through to your degrees in land management conservation. And, you know, for three days of the week, you're cutting privet for practice and the fourth day you're um, you're doing your formal studies but your fifth day should be re- uh, reserved for your culture and heritage matters and you know learning how to catch a fish and how to read water and how to track a, an animal and all these other pursuits that we used to do and take for granted but now they've lost because of all the assimilation policies and the welfare boards and stolen generations stuff that went on with us and the loss of our language and you know the loss of our identity and and all these other things that went along with that assimilation policy, I want to see that reverse. You know, we've got the red regret cert now where people learn their culture and heritage and they learn learn about their identity. And uh, uh, an old mate of ours, Uncle Stan Grant, said, if you ever got a language, you really haven't got an identity. So it's all about putting all those things back in place and making our children and our young men and our young women and even our older fellows and older girls proud of who they are. I mean, that's basically what, you know, assimilation and the stolen generation was all, all about, was breaking us down and thinking that we were nobody and 
want us to be white when we're not really, you know, we're blackfellas and that's just the way it is. So you're a Dumarang. Um, I'm um, Annie Mary Atkinson, proud Ngunnawal Rajiri elder in my community. Um, I've got four children. I married a man from Cumbergunja Mission. Um, we moved up here 40 plus years ago to Wagga under the um, Aboriginal Resettlement Scheme. Annie Mary, you have contributed a small part of your life in, in a story in the new book, Growing Up Wiradjuri. How did you pick what to include? Oh, well, you know, when we started this journey right nearly four years ago, I was thinking, oh, well, what do you want to know about me for, you know? like, And then um, when Anita um, gave us the story behind what she was aiming at and the target she was aiming at, and I was thinking, yeah, well, I could do that because I can... Um, understand what it was like because I left school at a very early age and I thought like education is important and I feel that a lot of um, young ones today we have like a roving population within like how we have like people in the in our armed forces or we have people that just move from community to community whatever they need to can sort of um identify with that as well like I did when I moved around like Mm. that so yeah you started work when you were eight years old right yeah (laughs) picking fruit (laughs) yeah under the prune trees and grape you know I don't know how much we picked we had a lot of fun me and my cousins and we we did help pick the fruit and that we just but we just thought it was fun and we was eating plenty of fresh fruit and (laughs) had plenty of food I always had a bed to stay where all our mob were you know our families and I remember like going to Brungle there with my um, auntie, who's my dad's sister, and they had they had like four kids as well, and we all just stayed in one bedroom, you know, like, and we all were all comfortable, foot to foot, head to head, toe to toe, you know. So we all just had somewhere to stay, and we just played as normal kids do, you know. We didn't know no different. It's the first line in your story, or the second line, but it, re- it really caught me. Your mum fostered over a hundred kids yep. in her time. Yeah, she did, and she was um, very instrumental with the policy of the time about um, our if kids were taken and um, fostered and couldn't be living with their families for whatever reason. She was very instrumental about implementing like kinship for our our families that they needed to be with Aboriginal families or at least your own kin and that like that, so that identity could always remain. It sounds like growing up, your family might not have had a whole lot of money. Did Why, why do you think your mum found it so important to foster these kids? Just to keep together the, their identity together, I think, and know where they come from and where they've been because we may not have had much, but the main thing we had was we had our family, you know. We had um, a place to sleep, a place to eat. Someone would take us in, you know, like you weren't never homelessness you never had that like and we would just go into each other's homes and it was important that we care and we share for each other that's Aboriginal way you know we share with each other and we care for each other. Arnie Mary when someone reads this story what do you want them to get out of it? Oh, I just want them to get out of like like I was saying you, you don't have to have all the big um, bells and whistles of the world as long as you have each other and um you can be there for each other and you share that and you care for each other, like give out that kindness you, and make um, positive roles of what you have in your life. 
you know, be happy. Like I've could have um, turned around and been, you know, a lot of, had a lot of anger for things that happened to us growing up. But where would it get me? You know, like for the first what eight years of my life, I wasn't even considered to be a human being. You know, mm. so I just thought, like, you know, um, it's about time that people realise that there's people walking around in this country, Australia today, that have lived through those um, oppressions. Mm. And I believe that education can take you um, a long way and I believe in true reconciliation will come by us, like James was saying earlier, if we've got our um, younger ones or even not so young ones being in there and being amongst all that planning and um, having that seat at the table where you've got your, your voices heard. That was Arnie Mary Atkinson speaking with the Ways Jerome Commissari. A little earlier, you also heard from Annie Lorraine Tai and Uncle James Ingram. All three elders are featured in a collection called Growing Up Wiradjuri, which is published by Magabala Books and edited by Dr. Anita Heiss. You're listening to Away, Indigenous Arts and Culture on ABCRN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.